Well, welcome everybody to the podcast that is sweeping upper campus and sometimes even listened to on lower campus. This is chunky theological salsa. It's chunky because we want to discuss issues of gravitas. It's theological because Eben has a fuller theological seminary sweatshirt that he wears at least every day. And it's salsa because we want to have a little fun. And who doesn't like salsa? The music and the condiment. I am one of your hosts. Let's call me host 1A-3, Scott Lasea, the campus pastor at Westmont College. And with me, writing co-pilot, the one, the only, Eben Drost. Eben, say hello to the fine people. Hi, everyone. This is your co-host, 1B-CA. The number four and the hyphen and then the hieroglyphic for goat. Okay. And today we have, uh, I'm so thrilled. Uh, <laughs> we have Trumper Longman. I don't know how we did this. I don't know if he owes me money, but somehow the one and only Dr. Trumper Longman has agreed to come onto our podcast. And Eben had Trumper, were you a freshman at Westmont? Yeah, I was a freshman in 2007 and I took his Old Testament class. Well, Tremper came to Westmont after I had graduated because I graduated in the late 1800s. And, um, but I still got to be one of his students because I took him for one of my master's classes at Fuller, uh, on wisdom literature. And, uh, this class sometimes met, uh, at a neutral site and sometimes in his living room over red wine. And it was clearly my favorite master's level theology course. Tremper, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Scott. Thanks, Evan. Great to be with you. And uh, yeah, wine always makes classes better. <laughs> <laughs> always, always. You yeah. know, studying, studying, the, <laughs> studying the song of the Solomon, song of Solomon <laughs> with a glass of red wine uh, did get dicey. Yeah, <laughs> right. Now, Evan, or do you have any? Uh, you said you were maybe unclear on who we were interviewing today. Well. I, I was under the impression we were getting Tremper Longman the fourth, but I'm going to have to readdress now and just hope that this Tremper Longman is like Toy Story, where the third one's the best one. Mm. <laughs> well, of course, I disagree with you. He's <laughs> and probably number one and number two, uh, we called number one plain Tremper Longman because he had no uh, suffix, and then we fought with Tremper Longman Jr. So. Uh, <laughs> But they're no longer with us. And so <laughs> there you go. Well, I, I did a similar thing in our family. Instead of I was tempted to go the George Foreman way and just named all the boys George. <laughs> but instead, yeah. everybody's middle name is Scott. So you've got right. uh, I'm Raymond Scott Lasea. You've got Tyler Scott Lasea, Reed Scott Lasea, Braden Scott Lasea, my nephew, Brandon Scott Lasea, and our dog, Henry Nowen Scott Lasea. And uh, when when the boys were young, if you would have asked them what their mother's middle name was, they would have told you Scott. <laughs> That's good. I like. That. All right, uh, Evan. Let's uh, let's tell the people just a little bit about who we've got here because th this is a big fish. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna just give you some of the biography details of Dr. Tremper Longman. Um, he graduated from Ohio Wesleyan University, earned a Master of Divinity from Westminster Theological Seminary, completed a doctorate in Ancient Near Eastern Studies at Yale University, and he served as the Robert H. Gundry Professor of Biblical Studies at Westmont from 1998 until um, recently, 2017. 
but he continues to serve Westmont in various ways and as a distinguished scholar of biblical studies. He's written lots and lots of books and um, a lot of great ones with his best friend, Dan Allender, who's a psychologist. Uh, he works on history and histo historiography. Um, Watch your language. Lots of, yeah, sorry. There's lots of textbooks out there. Um, he's one of the main translators of the New Living Translation Bible. Love it. And has helped Love with it. some other ones, too. And yeah. And Tremper, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more of what you're up to these days now that you're not on campus at Westmont, where you are, and what's occupying your time. Sure. Thanks, Evan. Uh, yeah, so I retired at the relatively young age of 64, not because I wanted to leave Westmont which and Santa Barbara, which I did not, uh, but because we wanted to be close to our kids and grandkids. We have three sons and six granddaughters and uh, we wanted to be, and everybody was on the East coast, including my mother. And at that time, three years ago, my mother-in-law was still alive. So we moved back to Alexandria, Virginia, uh, right outside of DC because a couple of our sons and their daughters are, are in this area. And, um, and so I, and I don't call it retirement, really. I call it redeployment. I'm still writing, I'm writing a commentary on Revelation right now and a book on literary approaches to biblical interpretation and a whole bunch of smaller things, uh, as well as, uh, normally traveling all over the place and teaching intensives, but now I'm zooming. I, since the virus hit, I've taught Zoom courses in Sydney, which made for interesting hours since I'm doing it from the East Coast and Sydney's, uh, you know. At and least then, a half an uh, hour away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then uh, uh, Calgary and Seattle, and uh, I was going to give some lectures in Montgomery. And yeah, so, um, and coming up, I'm... Um, doing a class for Regent in Vancouver, but that's going to be on um, Zoom as well. So so I do a lot of traveling. I don't really mind not traveling for a while. So but it's been it's been it's been good that way. I've been busy. Busy. Well, I do I, a lot of other things. <laughs> to say the least, I, I have two questions for you in light of all that. One is do you sleep? And the second one is uh will you be like Henry Nowen, who actually has written more books since he passed away? <laughs> yeah, um, that's interesting. You know, I'm sure I'll have a, I'm hoping I have a posthumous book someday, but not in the near future. Um, and um, yeah, no, I sleep, I sleep normally and regularly. I don't work on weekends typically. I don't work in the evenings. I just. That's fantastic. Have, uh, Various rhythms. I do spend a lot of time with my six beautiful granddaughters. One of them's downstairs right now with my wife planting plants. <laughs> <laughs> well, the faculty well, we here at Westmont uh, always joke that uh, at sabbatical reports, somebody would get up and say, well, I finished this article. And then Tremper would get up and say that he wrote eight books. So, <laughs> yeah, and Scott and I were laughing because we were like, oh, we're going to talk to you about you know, your book, The Bible and the Ballot. And then we realized it's, even though that came out like earlier this year, it is not your most recent book to be published. Your Daniel commentary came out in May. 
Yeah, yeah. It's actually not a commentary, Evan. It's uh, which I did do in 1997, <laughs> but it is uh, called "How to Read Daniel." It's a uh, series of books I did on the starting back in the 1980s with how to read Psalms and how to read Exodus. It's how to read Genesis. Yeah, so this is the sixth one in that series. But uh, uh, to relieve everybody, I won't have another book come out for probably a couple of years. (laughs) (laughs) The stack's getting high. There's a rumor that you actually helped Elton John write his song, Daniel. Is that true? (laughs) No, that's not my genre of music. (laughs) All right, well, this... I'd have written, uh, helped write Nabucco for, uh, with Verity or something, <laughs> which is about Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> well, this book, uh, the, the Bible and the ballot using scripture in political decisions. I can't think of a more timely, timely time to talk to you than in an election year. And then, of course, we're in the midst of a global pandemic where we're seeing human free or, you know, the citizens' freedoms encroached upon because of public health. And so we see that dialogue going on. And then also we find ourselves right now in a time of deep racial tension in our country. So we have some things to talk about, but I I did read your book. And if I read it correctly, it seems to be what you're saying. And tell me if I'm wrong, Eben, on your take. But if if we just read the Bible, then we'll know everything to do about specific (laughs) policies. Am I right? Did I get that right, Eben? Oh, 100%. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Trump, you said that actually in the introduction, in writing the book, that you actually changed your mind on particular issues while you were writing. Could you tell us about that? Yeah. 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 But first, let me, I, 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 I'm sure everybody noted the tone of sarcasm, but uh, yeah, let me just say <laughs> that, uh, that I don't think the Bible gives us specific public policy, but it does give us principles to think through as we think about public policy issues. And also, um, it gives us, uh, it shapes our attitudes and disposition toward people and the objects of public uh, policy. And finally, should also temper our rhetoric as we talk about these issues. And, And I think the latter, well, that was one thing that that I realized as I got into it, I went into it saying, yeah, we're going to get principles here that are going to help us think about issues like racism and religious liberty and abortion, et cetera. And, um, but then I realized, especially as I heard the rhetoric out there, uh, some of which coming from Christians and also knowing that that rhetoric, that kind of what can only be described as vitriolic, uh, rhetoric can only come from a place of intense anger and hatred, even. Mm. Uh, I realize that the Bible's more than interested in our brains. It's interested in our emotions and in our speech. It's interested in us as whole people. But in answer to your question, Scott, yeah, I mean, there was more than one place. And it wasn't like I went from one extreme to another extreme. But I, I think actually um, two examples were um, on the abortion issue, which I've been consistently pro-life, and it hasn't changed my view on that. But it has kind of, but I but I do think what, what you often find out there, and I think I imbibed of this attitude for a long time, that abortion is murder, plain and simple. 
obvious as day. And as I got into it, I I, I came to the conclusion because the Bible, you know, doesn't address abortion directly, which is actually in and of itself kind of surprising because there was a lot of abortion use of, you know, abortion uh drug agents and so forth back during the biblical time as well. But I came to the conclusion that it's a moral violation, but it's not the equivalent of, say, first degree murder. Um, And again, you know, you could get into that in the book. I think particularly telling is passage in Exodus 21 about a woman who is hit during a fight. She's pregnant and it says the baby comes out. Uh, now, evangelical translations will say something like, you know, we'll assume that the baby is born at that point. Uh, but that's that's an interpretive move that, you know, there's an argument in favor of it. But that leads to a fine rather than capital punishment. So, again, I, I don't want to. Yeah, the problem with talking about any issue like this right. in a brief compass you need a lot. So read the book. (laughs) But then the other one was religious liberty, you know, kind of another thing that Christians these days are publicly insisting on our religious liberty. And as I got in the Bible, it, 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 you can make an argument for religious liberty based on the fact that we're created in the image of God and we should treat each other with dignity and respect. And for one thing, you can develop uh, idea of freedom of conscience out of that, uh, which would include religious liberty. But what really struck me as I read the Bible is there's actually no no presumption of religious liberty in the Bible. In the Old Testament, you know, there's no religious liberty. If you're an Israelite, you either worship Yahweh or you get out. Right. You know. Right. Uh, in, in the New Testament, there's no presumption of religious liberty. Uh, because Christians are living under the Roman Empire, uh, and they're not advocating for religious liberty or calling for it or anything like that. They're just living in the midst of religious persecution and staying faithful. And then the other thing that dawned on me, uh, and I realized this, this wasn't a new insight to me because I taught in Beijing a lot and observed the church there, and I've observed the church here, and I've observed the church. I've taught a lot in Korea and a lot of other places too, but mm. just use those three as an example. And anecdotally, the church does the worst when it has a lot of religious liberty. Mm. And it does, it's even worse if religious liberty is connected to religious privilege and is close to political power. Mm. Uh, and in a place like China, I saw this, you know, because I've been going to Korea. I taught at Westminster Seminary the first half of my career, and I had hundreds of wonderful Korean students, many of whom went back and are professors or pastors back in Korea. And and many of them will be the first to tell you that once the church got close to political power and grew very wealthy, um, a lot of corruption stepped in. And right now, Korea has been, you know, 20 years ago, you'd hear about these, the wild church growth in Korea. Now you hear about radical uh, contraction of the church, especially among younger people. And, uh, but you go to China, and you know, the church there is not free, but it is thriving and vital. 
and exciting. Uh, Isn't that ironic so, that uh, the very thing that we yeah. are so afraid of losing often uh, may be the thing that actually empowers the church to have more vitality? Well, and the other thing is, if 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 and, and again, don't hear me, please, listeners, <laughs> saying I don't want religious liberty or the liberty that we should so much enjoy uh, that we should enjoy uh, here in the United States. Uh, but one thing it does, if if Christianity is on the cultural outs, you don't get nominal believers in China, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, they're not going to go to church uh, for all the wrong reasons. So, um, so yeah, um, Don Carson makes the same point. I forget the name of the book. I cited in my book. He makes the same point, but he does talk about certain um, certain types of persecution that are so severe that it, you know, can destroy the church. Right. But there were times during the Roman Empire that the church was um, persecuted uh, very heavily and still managed to thrive. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure you're thinking about that in your Revelation book yeah. you're working on. Sure am. I sure am. That's right. Yeah, I was just going to say it's a good thing we don't have any problems with, you know, connection to power and privilege in the church in America oh, today. No. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I became a Christian, Evan, um, right at the end of high school. And then my friend Dan Allender, whom you mentioned, became a Christian about six months later when we were roommates at Ohio Wesleyan. Um, the Ohio Wesleyan. And I remember. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I remember thinking, um, you know, because a whole bunch of it, it was during the Jesus Revolution. We were all Jesus freaks. And yes, I did have hair down to my shoulders and wear it tie-dye shirt and a silver cross necklace but um but and dan who dan had dan has very uh curly hair and he had an afro that would have made Jimi hendrix look ashamed of his afro but uh <laughs> but um yeah so i remember a lot of people were becoming christians and of course it was also a time when the leaders at that time, including people like R.C. Sproul, who was a young guy in the part of Ohio where we were in Western Pennsylvania, and others were calling on Christians to go into all walks of life and to transform it. And I remember thinking, we're going to change the world for better. <laughs> and uh, and I have to say, I I will confess that I struggle with disappointment um because uh, you know i i'm i'm not sure that christians for the most part there's some notable exceptions uh but right now i'm struggling to find those christians who are close to political power at least in dc who are really working to transform the world for the better in the sense of helping the vulnerable um helping uh, the poor helping race relations um, and so forth and so mm -hmm. on. So, but I'm not deeply depressed because I, I know with God, we can transform situations um, and move toward the better. Mm -hmm. Amen. 
Yeah. Um, well, I might just follow up that with a few maybe related questions. I'm, I'm really interested. You use the book of Daniel to, um, as an example of thinking about some questions of religious liberty and some questions of Christians kind of living in a context where there's a, well, in Daniel, he's, there's, there's a ruler who's against Yahweh and how they mm -hmm. handle that. So I wonder if you could tell a little bit about the book of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, um, yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. I, yeah. That's, um, Daniel, uh, is an interesting sort of, uh, role model, I think, for us. Not because he tells us how, not that he, the book or he gives us a formula for how to interact with culture. But as a matter of fact, just the opposite. It kind of shows that how Christians interact with a culture which is toxic to our faith um, isn't reducible to a formula, but you have to use wisdom, which means knowing the principles and then knowing not only how to take those principles to, say, advocate for certain public policies, but how to also implement those public policies or how we might uh, advocate that our politicians, our government implement and, and the church uh, as well. Mm -hmm. So so the surprising thing about Daniel, I mean, it strikes you right in Daniel chapter one. Uh, Daniel gets forcibly removed and set in the middle of the Babylonian empire. And he sent off the Babylonian university now, granted, he's forced to do all this, and if he doesn't, he'll be killed. But we also know from later stories that Daniel would rather be killed than to compromise his faith. Okay, so, um, so, but, but Daniel in Daniel chapter one goes off to Babylonian University, and what many people don't understand is um, that the curriculum of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, which we happen to know because archaeologists have discovered the tablet in my PhDs in ancient uh, Babylonian studies. Uh, we, know what he, we know what he studied, and it included things like divination. That would have been the biggest part of his curriculum. Um, and so um, he would learn how to read a lamb's liver or uh, to sort of tell the future. Uh, astrology, he would have learned, and this is the most interesting for Daniel chapter two, how to interpret dreams, mm -hmm. which was different than biblical method of interpreting dream. The Babylonian method was the dreamer would tell you the dream and then you'd go look at the commentaries to interpret the dream for them. And then it's a great gig because if it's a bad outcome, you can also get paid to perform a ritual to avoid that outcome. But that's another story. Um, and um, so, so Daniel doesn't object to going. Uh, he not only doesn't object to going, at the end of the chapter, he's the valedictorian. <laughs> uh, but he does choose not to eat the food that um, Nebuchadnezzar is supplying for him. But if you look closely, it's not a matter of keeping kosher, because in Daniel chapter 10, he is eating that food and drinking the wine. Uh, and you can exclude a whole bunch of other reasons or motivations. Um, in the final analysis, the motivation is that he's giving God room to work. He's giving God room to work because 
we know from ancient art, Babylonian art, that wise men were chubby bald guys, okay? That's the look that Nebuchadnezzar's going for. I'm on my um, way. And <laughs> yeah, so um, so the drinking water and eating vegetables is a counter counter to that goal. But at the end, when apparently they're proclaimed valedictorians, we assume that they have the look Nebuchadnezzar's going for, which means that God made them that way and not uh, Nebuchadnezzar. But the bottom line is um, sometimes Daniel does resist. Sometimes Daniel tries to work from within. Um, sometimes Daniel does his best to withdraw uh, from the toxic culture. But it's not as simple as saying we just we just have to always attack culture or we always have to withdraw from culture. Or we always have to try to transform culture. Let's keep so, talking yeah. about that because I, I feel like you're you're touching on what to me seems to be the question of this book. You say at some at one point Christians are followers of Jesus, but also citizens of a nation state. How do Christians live shrewdly and innocently with the tension between church and culture? What does it mean, I think you're asking, to, for Christians to be in the world, but not of it? And, uh, and just right. even touched on there that you say it's not a single strategy. So I can't give you one rule book yeah, to right. do this. How do, how do you address that? Well, um First of all, it might not even be one rule book for all of us on the same issue. Uh, God calls some people to one strategy and another one uh, to another. Um, I, you know, um, you you really might, with all matters wisdom, I think you first of all start by going to the Bible to find those principles. It's kind of like Proverbs. Uh, the first way you start is you want to learn the Proverbs, but it's not enough just to know the Proverbs. Then you have to learn how to read a cultural situation, how to read people. You need to know yourself. And and how do you, how do, you do that? Well, you do that primarily by being observant and reflective and also from learning from your mistakes as you try to interact with culture and you realize something didn't work. I mean, even take the abortion issue um, again. Again, I'm pro-life. Uh, I don't want to see people getting abortions, especially for frivolous ideas, uh, fr frivolous reasons. But is the best route to a desired end working to reverse Roe versus Wade. I think there's a pretty good argument that it's not the best way to try to achieve that end. And because if Roe versus Wade is overturned, then what happens are the states start. Some states will have it, some states won't. It'll become particularly problematic for the poor. People will still get abortions. And it's very unlikely that there'd be a federal uh, say a amendment banning it, but even in that case, then people are going to start getting abortions illegally again. And so, is the best route to a desired end working hard to reverse Roe versus Wade? I 
I personally think that the church just needs to preach a pro-life message and try to persuade people. And then also to work even harder than it presently does in terms of helping women who don't want to keep their babies for one reason or another uh, with adoption agencies right. and things like that. Is is this um, what you mean but, in the book, yeah. um, Trevor, when you start talking about practical wisdom? Yeah, 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 it is. But, you know, I also wouldn't divorce that completely from what I also call ethical wisdom. <laughs> you know, that we're talking about ethics here as well, and ultimately theological wisdom. Well, another example has to do with same-sex marriage, for instance. Uh, I think uh, the Bible is clear that same-sex sexual relations are uh, prohibited. And uh, I make that case in in the book. But that doesn't resolve the answer of how we should treat same-sex marriage as a public policy, you know, in terms of should we really care to reverse the country's, you know, approval of same-sex marriage? Now, and this brings up another issue. Uh, If you're a Christian nationalist... (laughs) Uh, then you're going to you're going to insist that uh, the country or try to work for the country to reflect Christian values, and I think that's a very wrong-minded attitude, um, because um, I don't think our nation is a Christian nation. That doesn't mean we shouldn't advocate for our values, but but I think there's a place to say let's keep our churches pure on these types of matters uh, and then not worry so much about the country's laws. I, I, I have a good, well, I was influenced early on reading something by Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher of the previous generation, where he basically said, I'm paraphrasing the quote, God doesn't care how non-Christians act. He cares that non-Christians become Christians. Uh, C.S. Lewis says the same thing about trying to legislate Christian morality into the British legal system. And he was talking specifically about divorce. And he makes this comment about what he called him a Mohammedan, uh, trying to impose his views on wine uh, in Sharia law on, on me. I think Christians need to understand that we don't live in a Christian nation. We we want our nation to reflect Christian values. There's only one nation that was a God-chosen nation that as a government was supposed to reflect God's values, and that was Israel in the Old Testament time period. Today, we live in the church where God draws people from many different countries. So how do we balance that, though, Tremper? Because I understand what you're saying, that on one hand, we would not expect a non-believer to live by the same convictions that a believer does. But on the other hand, like in our own immediate current context with racial injustice going on, we we are asking actually for laws 
that would reflect justice, which is, I think, reflects the heart of God. Uh, so, you know, what, what are some biblical yeah. principles that, that can inform and shape practices like protest and civil disobedience in times where we're asking for societal change? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I may have been may have spoken in such a way to be misheard. There's there's actually nothing wrong for us trying to persuade our fellow citizens to join us in, you know, changing laws that will reflect our Christian values. Mm. I just worry that when we do it in such a way that, first of all, has little real chance of happening <laughs> and we in the process we so sour our relationships with our fellow citizens that it becomes counterproductive and so i think in terms of racial relationships and addressing the systemic racism in ourselves and in our institutions and in our country um we need to reflect the Bible's view that every human being is created in the image of God and is deserving of great dignity, that the church is composed of people from many different nations and ethnicities and, and on and on and on. And in the first place, the church needs to reflect these yeah. values and we need to do our best to root out and disown any form of racism, especially disowning ourselves from say Christian white supremacist groups. Yeah. So, and in terms of protest, especially in a democracy like ours, which does have freedom of speech, uh, there's everything right about peaceful protests in the face of injustice. Uh, but I want to put an emphasis on peaceful, nonviolent protests. I remember, this is not an American example, but I remember lecturing on Daniel in Hong Kong about four or five years ago about, you know, how to interact with a toxic culture. And I made the point, this is, I was asked to speak about it. And I said, this is not my culture. I'm not going to say anything except what I here in the book of of Daniel, and a couple of young uh, Hong Kong Christian college age uh, people came up to me and said, "We're going to have to take to the streets eventually. We know that, and we're probably going to have to get violent out in the street." And I said, "No, you cannot support violence in the streets of Hong Kong." And I said, "In any case." Think about who you're being violent against. I don't see how that would be a successful strategy. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, and we, I think Christians need to, you know, disown the violence. I mean, I, I think on the one hand, uh, we ought to also understand where it's coming from, mm -hmm. you know, generation of persecution, oppression all kinds of things. So I understand where it's coming from, but that doesn't, and I'm so heartened. I saw today on the news where a number of places where protesters themselves were sort of taking down the violent yeah. people. They were protecting stores. They were, somebody was knocking off 
cement from the sidewalk to throw at the police and they tackled him and turned him over to the police. So but that might yeah, be a good but, violence there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's self-defense. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, it's, um, it's really, really important to hear the protesters. And it's really, really important that our governmental officials don't use the violent violence of a small group of people to, uh, do not listen to the peaceful protests. That'll be just an excuse that some will use to avoid addressing the concerns that need to be addressed. Yeah. And as we're on this topic, you write in your book about um, race. And I just wanted to ask you if you could tell listeners a little bit about, you talk about a biblical basis for reparations to the African-American community. And I, I'm persuaded by it, but I would just love to hear you talk a little bit more about that since that touches on just the kind of historical injustices we're talking about. Yeah. Um, and that's another area where I kind of changed my views as I got into it more, understood it better. And and here I kind of violated my own uh, <laughs> uh, restriction about uh, principles and not specific public policy, though you'll notice that what I'm calling for are discussions of it, not, you know, uh, not an agreement on it, nor because for one thing, there is no way, uh, you know, the descendants of slaves could be paid what they deserve to receive. <laughs> And it doesn't have to be money payments. It could be other public policy um, things. But but I let's see if I can find it real quick. I know we're running out of time here. There's well, I'll just paraphrase it. There's a law, and 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 you'll have to help me here. I know the name, know how to spell it, but I don't know how to pronounce it. Mister Coates. Uh, oh, yeah, ton who, of yeah, yeah, yeah. So he he pointed to Deuteronomy, a law in Deuteronomy, which I know well, but I hadn't thought about this in conjunction with this issue, you know, that says when you release your slaves, you give them money so they don't fall back into the debt that led to slavery to begin with. OK, that's the idea there. Now, I say th these laws are no justification for slavery. <laughs> uh, and you can read about what I talked, the redemptive ethical trajectory and why I see slavery as not God's ideal in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Hmm. But, but this law in Deuteronomy says, when you release a slave, you know, give them something. And, and indeed, um, General Sherman had convinced Abraham Lincoln, what is it, to give a donkey and 40 acres of land to every freed slave. And then Andrew Johnson, right? He comes in and cancels the whole arrangement. Uh, so, mm. yeah. So I don't know. So, so I, as I got into that issue, I, I thought, yeah, we, we do need to have a discussion. And I was also responding because when I was writing that section, Mitch McConnell was, uh, was saying things like, yeah, we're not going to talk about this. This is ridiculous. Uh, so not even entertaining the idea of a 
civil discussion about it. Mm -hmm. Aggravating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I admit I've, I've read some things in this last year. I think uh, Jamar Tisby's book um, was helpful talking about the idea of making a case for, for reparation that was maybe the first time I'd read and considered that and some of the historical uh, weight against a people has been very helpful. Uh, a couple of last questions for you. One is we just have to get to this. Uh, Trevor, what is your favorite dead language? <laughs> well, uh, my favorite dead language is Hebrew, actually. <laughs> you know, the, the type of Hebrew I study was a dead language. Modern Hebrew was invented in the 19th really? century. So, uh, yeah, they used the biblical, the 8,000 biblical words as a core, but then they had to recreate the language, which had been dead before the time of Jesus. You know, no one spoke Hebrew on the street when Jesus was around. Uh, Scott. But, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, the real question, although I think the first time I ever heard the word Ugaritic yeah. was in studying with you, but anyways, um, I thought that was something when your appendix gets inflamed, but apparently it's a language, but in, in summary, you wrote this book. Now you're seeing what's going on in our country. Let me just give you a, a minute or two to, to wrap up and say, what's your greatest concern right now? for the church in America, uh, in light of what you've thought? Uh, wow. My greatest concern, um, is that, uh, evangelical Christian church has aligned itself with one party that indeed does reflect some of our values, uh, but doesn't reflect others of our values, which the Democratic Party does. And my friend Tim Keller has a really good New York Times opinion piece article on that issue. And so I worry, my biggest worry is that elements within the church have so aligned themselves with one political party and with our president in a way that is so uncritical of where uh, you know, even if you support his policies, you need to call out the president when he steps over the line and betrays our values, like I believe he did yesterday in front of St. James yeah. Church in, in Washington, D.C. I, I, I think that borders on the desecration of scripture. Um, and it doesn't border on it, it is. It reminded me of Daniel again, you know, Belshazzar drinking wine out of the golden temple vessels as he's toasting his pagan gods. So, um, so the problem, yeah, it's frowned upon, frowned upon using sacred objects for Ill illegitimate purposes. So, um, so that's my biggest fear. Uh, and my friend, Pete Wayner, uh, Pete Wayner, is uh, a contributing editor to The Atlantic, and he was a senior advisor to President George W. Bush. And everybody should read his recent book on the death of pol uh, on the death of politics. It's wonderful, and he is a leading Trump critic. He's a devout evangelical Christian himself, and uh, he makes the point that the church's alignment with you know, Trump and what Trump represents has done, you know, enormous damage to the church, particularly among younger 
Christians and among African American Christians. And, um, and, and this leads to something I want to write on, what I call the idolatry of Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. If, um, if you, if somebody thinks that politics are going to solve our problems and when they get frustrated in that they get angry and lash out, that might be a symptom of something spiritually very bad. <laughs> if you're if you're turning to politics to save us, it will always let you down, just like any idol does. Um so Wayner, by the way, I know we're out of time, but just real quickly, he um he also has made the point a lot on both TV like CNN and in the New York Times that the reason why many Christians align themselves with Trump is that they're tired of being humiliated by the broader culture. And they see in Trump somebody who will bring, as he puts it, a gun to a cultural knife mm -hmm. fight. And, and my response to that, and I think it's Pete's as well, is first of all, our Lord was humiliated. He told us, yes, we will be humiliated. Uh, we shouldn't bring a gun to a cultural knife fight. We should embrace our humiliation and seek the best for our fellow citizens. Right. Wow. So That's so good. I mean, I think of, I can't remember how far into um, this term uh, of our president's term, all of a sudden, all critique from within the party his own party stopped and it became a yeah. very strange moment and has remained so uh, as far as how partisan then everything has become in our country well we didn't get to eben's questions about dinosaurs uh but we have sufficiently touched on every hot topic that will mean that eben and i are now looking for jobs so we really want to thank you Tremper, for weighing in. Uh, thank you for bringing your heart and mind. And you certainly made this salsa chunky and we appreciate it. Blessings on you. Thank, thank you. Thank so you. Much. So much.